Hi, this is Brian Standing, host of the Monday 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thanks so much for listening to the program. Hope you subscribe to our podcast. And if you really like what you're hearing, consider donating at wortfm.org. According to the Pew Research Center, U.S. immigration officials apprehended or expelled a record 250,000 would-be migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border in December of 2023. That number dropped down to 124,000 in January, but nonetheless, the increase in activity at the border has fueled anti-immigrant rhetoric from the Republican Party and led to impeachment proceedings against Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. But what's the reality behind all that rhetoric? David Cannon, professor emeritus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, has just returned from an immersive trip to the U.S.-Mexico border sponsored by the nonprofit Border Servant Corps. He joins us now to share his experience. Welcome, David. Good to be here. Thanks. So tell us about Border Servant Corps. What are they? Yeah, so it started out as a relatively small organization about 25 years ago in Las Cruces, New Mexico, in a a Lutheran church. And their aim was to help people coming across the border, often who, you know, arrived with nothing more than the clothes on their back. And so they tried to, to give them the help they needed to be able to move on to their eventual destinations with a host family or family members uh, around the country. And with the the surge in the border crossings that you mentioned in the intro, um, the, the resources of most of the organizations at the border were overwhelmed. And so organizations like Border Servant Corps ended up stepping up uh, and getting you know more resources to be able to handle the influx of, of people coming across the border. And so now they're doing very much the same thing, but on a much broader scale. And tell us about the tour that you participated in. Who else went at, uh, with you and where did you go? Yeah, so we it was actually a group of us from my uh, church on the west side of Madison, Advent Lutheran Church, and there was a, a group of six of us went down, including our, our pastor. Um, and the the purpose of it was to just learn what really is happening at the border because you know watching the news accounts uh it's just such a a stream of of negative news and all of the depictions of you know the violence and the 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 camps and and you just don't get a real sense for what's happening so that was why we went down there and we had a, a very good sort of overall uh, introduction to the sort of politics and the uh, reality of what's happening at the border, meeting with some border agents from immigration. We spent one morning in federal district court seeing the cases of people who had been apprehended at the border and now are facing felony charges because it was the second time they had been apprehended. Uh, we spent an uh, afternoon with a public defender, so we saw kind of the legal side. Went to at least four different shelters, uh, all of which we're in the, the business of trying to, to help the, the migrants as they came across the border and move on uh, to other places around the country. About 95% of the people who come in, and we were in both in El Paso and in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and about 95% of the people who come across the border there do go on to, within about 48 hours is the average day, two to three days is the average day there. And so the the shelters that we met with were all, you know, making travel arrangements, you know, giving the migrants coats and jackets and clothes because they're coming from warm climates where they 
don't have clothing to be able to survive in in colder temperatures um, and uh, medical assistance in in many cases. So you mentioned that uh, the majority of the, the people who were coming into these shelters are then moving on. Um, right. Are they are they legal migrants at that point? Are they yeah. asylum seekers? I mean, what what right. category like, do the folks all, fall in? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Great question. So they all at the, at that point when they do move on are asylum seekers, uh, and so they're when they're. They come in, they're, they're processed, they're uh, given documents and given a court date at some point in the future. These court dates can be anywhere from three months to four years in the future because we have this huge backlog now of about three million cases in our asylum courts. Uh, and so, but they do have legal you know, papers at that point. Um, and they then are, are going on to you know, Denver, Chicago, New York are the, the most common destinations from, from those two cities. And then, so, so how does that work? So you, you arrive at the border, you get status as an, an asylum seeker, you move on to you know, somewhere else uh, in the United States. Then uh, what what is what are those what are their lives like after that point? Well, here is is where the the process kind of breaks down for a lot of of cases. And one the one thing that we did in in our trip was you know ask people we met with like what would you do to solve this problem? And two things that came up most most often one directly addresses this question of what happens to people when they they go to these cities is the time gap between when they arrive and when they're able to work. Right now it's it's 180 days before they can actually get a work permit and they all want to work uh, they they want to be able to you know be productive uh, you know in in society and they're not able to work legally and so one thing that everyone said is that if we could shorten that time uh, to you know say you know 30 days that would solve a lot of the problem because the migrants going to these northern cities you know, are a strain on the resources in those cities. And so that would be a, a huge help. The other thing that everyone mentioned uh, was having more work permits, legal entry for low-skilled workers. Because right now, almost all of the work permits for people actually to come into the, the country legally for, for work are for computer people and other you know, high-tech kind of skills, not for low-skilled workers. But when you look around the country, you know, we have record low unemployment right now. We have desperate need. There are help-wanted signs you know, all over the place in every city in the country. And so if you allowed more legal immigrants to come in you know, with work permits, and almost everyone mentioned that. And that seems to me should be a, a nonpartisan issue. That, that shouldn't be something that divides Democrats and Republicans, it's something that actually would, would help the economy. And everyone we met with you know, mentioned that. You know, there's a there's a lot of debate uh, here about you know whether there's actually a labor shortage or whether there's a you know shortage of jobs with good wages, um, and I think there's been some concern expressed by some here about the idea of allow you know expanding immigration for low wage workers. What would that do? To the wage, to overall wage schedules for those uh, those types of workers, do you have more competition for those jobs? Does that drive the the wages down? Well, the the problem right now is that there are about two job openings for every applicant in a lot of, of states, and so there there are simply jobs that aren't being filled right now because. American citizens don't want to do those jobs, you know, in the you know, meatpacking plants and agriculture, especially. I mean, here in Wisconsin, the dairy farms have lost thousands during the Trump years, especially thousands of people feared deportation and they just left. And so we had, you know, thousands of people working on dairy farms that that just left. And so there's a huge need in the agricultural sector, especially. Uh, and so it from 
you know, most people who've looked at this issue is it it would be filling jobs that otherwise other folks you know wouldn't be taking in in this country um, and would end up having an overall positive impact on our economy. And uh, the flip side of that too is how is the issue of sort of exploitation of people who uh, you know come here may be worried about you know deportation, may not uh, be aware of you know workers' rights in in this country or what rights they may have. They may have a reduced set of rights. Um, how do they? Uh, what what are the strategies for uh, making sure that? The, folks who do come here to work aren't then exploited by people in the United States? Well, right, that's an excellent question. And, and having legal status is the best protection against that kind of exploitation. The people who are most vulnerable are people who, <clears throat> who come here uh, outside of the system and then often are put in situations where they're you know, working for below minimum wage and in terrible work conditions. Uh, and so by having legal status, that is definitely the, the best way to, to overcome that. And, and tell us about the people that you met uh, at the border. I mean, who are they? Where do they come from? And if they're seeking asylum, what are they seeking asylum from? Yeah, so that also is something that's changed pretty dramatically in the last you know, couple of years, um, that most of the, the migrants up until fairly recently were coming from Mexico, Central America, and you know some South American countries. Um, but now, like Venezuela was the one that everyone mentioned, that two years ago, nobody was coming across the border from Venezuela. And now the, there are over a million people have left Venezuela in the last you know 18 months. And many of them are coming across the border in, in Mexico. But it's not just Venezuela. It's also you know people from Syria. They mentioned even Turkey, uh, many you know, African countries that are you know, fleeing countries where their, their, their countries are you know, suffering from extreme violence. You, know, you have a lot of the drug cartels you know, in, in countries in, in Central America where you know, it's just made it untenable to, to live in some rural areas that are overrun by the drug cartels. And so people are, are fleeing either you know, collapsed governments or just impossible situations with, with violence. And so in the cases of people seeking asylum is a combination of economic factors, of course, but also uh, the uh, the lack of, of personal safety for their, themselves and their families. And and do we know what percentage of migrants at the border are uh, folks seeking uh, sort of work permits and which ones are, are seeking asylum? Well, that's another thing that has changed just in the last, you know, well, within the last year after Title 42, the, the COVID-related uh, restriction on being able to come across the border from the Trump years that Biden extended for a while and then disbanded last year. When when that changed, um, people overwhelmingly started uh, seeking asylum. The, the first thing a border agent will, will ask someone when apprehended at the border, do you fear to go back to your country? Do you fear for your personal safety to, to go back if you're sent back to your country? If they answer yes, they enter the asylum you know, channel. If they say no, I'm here seeking work, then they're they're turned back because that that is not. Uh, you have to have you know a work permit to be able to come in to to seek work, and so the people who say yes, I do fear for my safety, uh, go into more extensive questioning then from a, another border agent, and if they 
satisfactorily answer the questions that yes, they really are you know, fleeing a violent situation, then is when they get their court date and get papers giving them legal status to stay in the country. Now, even there, there are two different tracks. If you fill out your application to enter the country before you enter, this is new system that, that Biden set up uh, that's actually working quite well, um, is then you're on a fast track for your work permit. Then you can get your work permit in 30 days. If you enter, you're apprehended at the border, you haven't filled out your application before crossing the border, um, then you're on that track that makes you wait 180 days. And unfortunately, that's still a majority of the asylum seekers are in that category. So what happens to someone who comes into the country and can't work for 180 days? How do they survive? Well, they they depend on uh, different charitable organizations, you know, to support them, host families. Sometimes they'll have, you know, family members already in in the country. um, And that's that's one thing that one of the people we, we talked to at the border um, said that you know he said you know we don't have a crisis at the border right now we're we're doing fine handling the people at the border where this country needs more help with immigration is back in the interior as he called it you need to go back to your hometowns you know go back to Madison and you need to raise awareness about these issues and you need to you know help people in your community that's where we need help with the people who do arrive and can't work for 100, 180 days they need support just to survive until they can get that that work permit and so that's that's one of the messages we we got from all the amazing people we met with um, that were working so hard to to help these folks at the border so what sorts of institutions and uh, things are there here in Madison to help people in that situation? And what kinds of population do we have uh, in this area of asylum seekers who are in that 180-day status? Well, so we don't have the numbers the way, that say, Denver, Chicago, New York. There was a big article in New York Times just a couple of days ago you know, saying that Denver is a city that has the highest per capita number of of. Uh, asylum-seeking migrants. Uh, Madison has a you know, much uh, smaller number. It's, it's hard to get you know, accurate statistics on this uh, for, for every city, but we definitely have some in Madison, and it, it is uh, organizations like Centro Espano and, and other uh, nonprofits here in, in Madison that help with being able to get resources for people who need them. A lot of churches also are adopting families uh, for uh, you know, the, the time when they, they need housing and, and help. And so it is the, the local uh, nonprofits and churches that really are stepping up for the most part. And how do certain cities uh, become destination points for uh, for people for migrants? What what makes Denver, for example, or Chicago an attractive destination for someone who's coming from, you know, either either Mexico or Central America, or as you point out, from someplace like Syria or uh, and coming through that that border crossing? Right. Well, so a couple of things. One is the the politics of this, where you had Jim Abbott and and DeSantis and Abbott in Florida and DeSantis uh, Abbott in Texas and DeSantis in Florida, you know, making a political statement saying we're going to you know send these these migrants to to northern you know democratic cities um, and they there's a lot of publicized cases of you know them like you know paying the bus tickets and sending the people you know, up north so so part of it was that kind of you know political motivation I think to put pressure on democratic politicians to realize this is not just a border problem but it's something that the nation needs to address but then some of the also so that's the kind of push from from the border states but then also uh, the cities were like you know Denver has been very sort of welcoming in general that they are a sanctuary city um, that you know pledges to to 
treat people humanely and fairly. They're, they're not going to turn people over for deportation. And so once a city gets a reputation for being a city that is trying to treat people humanely and to help them get established and and uh, be able to you know find a place they can put down roots, then kind of word spreads among uh, different organizations and that's where you know people end up going. Another aspect of this though we haven't mentioned yet very much is the the role of the cartels. You know, that I, I mentioned that that was one of the reasons for asylum seekers to leave their communities is the violence of the drug cartels. But the cartels now have gotten into the, uh, the, the migrant business in a huge way. And we were told by multiple sources that nobody crosses the border today without the assistance of a cartel. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, This is a huge moneymaker from them. And they are exploiting these people. They're stealing what little money they have left. They're extorting more money from them after they cross the border. They'll, they'll keep them in these houses where they will you know, extort more money from their families, say we're going to kill them unless they you know, give us more money. And so the role of the, the cartels is another huge thing that also dictates the flow of where the migrants are are crossing and where and to some extent where they're they end up going although less probably on on that than where they're actually crossing and so um you know if you look if we look at sort of like a, a systemic way of s- sort of addressing this i mean you mentioned some things that, you know in terms of like reducing the the time period before people can work would help a lot um, but if we're if we're looking at trying to uh, decrease the number of people who are seeking asylum to begin with. I mean, it right. seems like it seems like you're pointing out the cartels are a. Is there is there some uh, is there some uh, some link to sort of the drug war as a whole? Is there and legalization? Is that part of what is driving the economics of all of this? Well, yeah, certainly the the drug cartels are a big part of it, but broader economic development is also a huge part. And it's it's not, you know, just the drug cartels and the drug wars, but you know, one just, you know, small example of another uh, successful uh so effort a couple of decades ago that's now gotten to be quite bigger is a organization called Just Coffee that um makes uh, the coffee producers, I think it's in, in Guatemala and Honduras, um, make them be able to get all of the profits you know, from growing their coffee rather than being exploited by the big coffee corporations. Um, and so they have this these direct purchases from these coffee growers, and they, they bought them these big coffee roasters that they were able to you know, produce their own coffee then and be economically self-sufficient. So they didn't need to you know, try to you know, come to the United States to, to make more money. They were you know, being able to support themselves and their families. Um, and so having more resources put into economic development, um, and one of the people we talked to mentioned, you know, having something like the EU for, you know, Central America and the United States and, and Canada uh, that would make for a, a truly more common market and promote economic development in those countries would be a big way to reduce the pressures that force many people to leave. These people don't want to come to America. They are, they're basically forced to come to America because of their conditions. All right. We've been speaking with David Cannon, Professor Emeritus of the University of Wisconsin Department of Political Science. Thank you so much for joining us. On the Good to be with class. you. And 